Spirit told Philip, go and join the chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I? He said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before its shear, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we, yeah, as we are confronted by the, the death of your son, by the, his being led before the, the shears as a lamb before the slaughter, we rejoice in that now. We are so thankful that that was a moment of victory for him. And Lord, just like the, the eunuch, we ask that your spirit would come and would guide us into all truth. Lord, that you would, through Pastor Patrick, through the, the preaching of the word, that you would reveal truth to us, that we would be overwhelmed by the wonder of the gospel and that we would respond dramatically the same way that the eunuch does. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, Daniel, awesome job on this, brother. They have put in so many hours getting this done. And Kristen, thank you for letting your husband be here to help set it all up. We are blessed to have this opportunity. And as we work through things, I do know there's a cord that if you touch it, it shuts everything off right now, okay? It happened, all right? Don't touch a thing. Stay still. And um, hey, can you raise the lights up in here a little bit? I want to see people. I need eyeballs. Remember we talked about it last time I was preaching? I need to see eyeballs so I know who I'm looking at. Anyways, hey, uh, if you're here, we're, we're continuing in Acts chapter 8. So if you have your Bible, we're going to continue with the story of the transition of the gospel out of Jerusalem and Samaria and into the rest of the world. Acts chapter 8 is such a pivotal chapter in the book of Acts because it does pivot. The gospel moves, it advances, and it's relentless. It's going to continue leading people to accept the message of Christ Last couple weeks, we've looked at Acts chapter 8 in that we've looked at the commemoration of Stephen's death. We recognize Saul beginning to persecute the church. Last week, Ryan brought us the passage of the Samaritans wrestling with their faith, the approval of Peter and John saying, yes, they really are believers, and then the comparison of genuine faith from false faith. And the progression of the gospel now ventures out even a little bit farther. We went from Jews um, to Jewish half-breeds, if you will, and now maybe a Gentile. The ends of the earth is where this gospel is going to go. But I have to ask a question. Do you have a sense of ownership over the, the, the book of Acts? When you read the events and the stories, do you hold on to them tightly? Do you read it with joy knowing the contents and stories are our lineage? I think we ought to. The humble beginnings of the church and the beginning of Acts is our humble beginnings as a church. I want us to enjoy the fact that this story, these stories are our family lineage. Inside our house, to the right of the fireplace, we have this big book. It's called The Thorntons and the Weavers. And my, someone on my grandma's side put together this huge family tree in history from stories of how they transitioned. Uh, I mean, a thick book, 700 or so pages. Now, Kelsey, myself, and Payson are in there in the family tree. We've made it, but there's nothing else for us. Yet when I read that big book... That's my family. I, I take ownership of it. And so when we read the book of Acts, it is the stories and the events and the happenings of the family of God. Brothers and sisters, that's our family. 
I want us to find joy as we read this, and this is our family lineage. This is something we continue to this day, the advancement of the gospel for Christ, and it is a great joy to be a part of it. And so this morning, I want us to recognize that nothing hinders the gospel's advance, nor God's children's involvement in the family. It is God who precedes this message, and it's God who welcomes his children home. I welcome you home. So let's take a deep breath and let's enjoy what does our family do so long ago that we get the opportunity to continue? Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we ask for a blessing to be upon us as we come to your word. Help us to teach it and to instruct it and to uh, enjoy it to in a capacity that we get, a, um, we get to continue the mission and the advancement of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'd love for you to open up with me to Acts chapter 8, verse 26, if you're following along. If you have your Bible, whether it's on your phone, whether it's in your lap, it's going to be great. So Acts chapter 8, verse 26 through 27, God first wants us to know that he calls personal evangelists. In chapter uh, verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was a, an Ethiopian man. See, in this story, in the last story that we looked at with, with Pastor Ryan as he led us through last week, Philip was in the heart of a countywide revival. The Samaritans were coming to faith. It was an exciting time. There were some challenges. There were some speed bumps to get through. But can you imagine the excitement and joy of watching people and families come to faith? It's invigorating. Being around someone who accepts the gospel fills us with great joy. Oh, it's, it's worth believing in. It's true. Other people see it. It's not, it's not just me. And yet in this moment of excitement for Philip, the Lord speaks to him and says, really simple, uh, it's time for you to go. So in the height of the excitement and people getting saved, he looks at Philip and says, it's time to move on. Just like telling a little kid, it's time to turn off a show and go to bed. You would think like, ah, do I really have to do that? This is, I, what I got going on right now is really good. And yet the Lord tells him, it's time for you to go. And there's an oddity to the request that God gives him. I want you to take the southern road to Gaza. So from Jerusalem to Gaza, and Gaza is southwest of Jerusalem. Uh, that would, I'm opposite for you. i got to remember that. You can either go west and then follow the coast south, or you can head south through the desert and then west through the desert. And so the Lord tells him, I want you to take the road less traveled. I want you to take the desert road. It's a specific road to take, one that most people don't travel. They don't take that day. And the nuances in the Greek, when it says go south on the road, that it actually infers at midday. So I want you to take the road that no one goes on at the time no one usually is on it. There's an oddity and a surprising aspect to what God re requires Philip to do. I want you to go to a specific place at a specific time. One thing we can pick up from Philip in this is we can infer that his joy is tied instinctively to God's leading more than the results. Results are great, and there's a lot of joy in the results of what God's going to have him do, but there's also a joy in obeying and being close and near to where the Spirit is leading. That's true for Philip. We don't see a hesitation. He packs up his bags. He gets ready. He heads out. The same joy he had in Samaria, I'm assuming in his mind, I'm going to have some of that wherever God's going to send me now. So despite the uniqueness of the request, God tells him to go. And God called him essentially in the first part of the story of Acts chapter 8 to be a Billy Graham, if you will. 
to be an evangelist who preaches on hillsides, preaches to multiple people. But in this instance, God is calling him out of a public address in evangelism to personal evangelism. What does God tell him? There was an Ethiopian man. God wants Philip to meet with one man. That's it. He wants him to meet with one man. God calls him to be a personal evangelist. There are a few Billy Grahams in this world, and still few of you will ever have the opportunity to share Christ to more than two people at once. More often than not, God calls personal evangelists, you and I, to share the gospel with one person at a time. That is the primary means of how the gospel is, is shared and advanced. One conversation, one coffee, one lunch, one neighbor visit across the fence, that's how the gospel advances. We're all to be evangelists. Those who have the gift of evangelism are merely called to equip the church to share the gospel. They're equipping them how to do it. But brothers and sisters, all of us are called to personal evangelism. We're all called to one person. And so God calls Philip to relational evangelism. I want you to talk with one man. And so the message this morning is not going to be a guilt trip in sharing your faith. The Holy Spirit is perfectly capable of doing that on his own. He doesn't need me to do it, all right? So this morning's message is to equip you for when you do answer the call to go. What do we do? What can I expect when I do answer the call to go on the road less traveled? At the time, nobody usually travels on it. To meet with a specific person at a specific time, I want to equip us with the ability to share the gospel and to find joy in doing so. And so the good news about Jesus and his gospel and message of salvation First and foremost is to recognize it can cross social and cultural barriers better than any other message that has ever been spoken. And that's why we read in the next part of 27, the gospel bridges cultural and social differences. Verse 27, there was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and a high official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem, and he was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. And the Spirit told Philip, go up and join that chariot. The man, an Ethiopian, and what the Bible usually calls the area of where he comes from is Cush. So if you read the word Cush in your Bible, specifically the Old Testament, that's today. And it's not Ethiopia today, all right? It's Sudan and South Sudan. That's where he came from. I know it's not Ethiopia. It's right next door just so you can picture it, it's still there today. But Luke tells us a lot about the man Philip was supposed to go and meet. His roles and his titles reveal something special. First, he's a eunuch. He's a counselor to a queen. He oversees the treasury of a nation. His wealth affords him a chariot and a personal scroll of Isaiah. That's his. That's odd for that time. This man far exceeds the necessary acumen to be considered significant. This man is the ancient definition of large and in charge. All those things aside, what's essential to the story, rather than his titles and his roles, are his activity. The Ethiopian was returning from worshiping in Jerusalem. He was a God-fearer. A term given to converts to the Jewish faith that did not grow up in, in Judaism. They're not culturally Jewish, yet they've converted. They believe in God. And he seems pretty devout in his fear of God. Because on the way home of worshiping in Jerusalem, he couldn't, have, he couldn't get enough, so now he's reading Isaiah. He's having his own personal Bible study. And he's reading aloud. That's how you read back then. You read out loud. And so on the surface, he was a God-fearer, and he couldn't get enough. Yet we have to acknowledge the first trait that Luke ascribes him. 
He's a eunuch. A man who at some point in his life, probably early, was emasculated. It was a common practice back then. It was an ancient world, is the ancient world's way of ensuring faithful service, whether a government role or to prevent them from having a family so that their devotion to their master was singular. There was no other distractions for him. He didn't have this choice to become a eunuch. It often just happens whether you become a slave or you grow up and you've been um, positioned, you are a eunuch and you're going to be in my service and I'm going to ensure you're going to serve me the rest of your life because you won't have a family. That's an interesting quality for Luke to mention. And what's even more complicated is the fact that although it's common in the ancient world, it was not common in ancient Israel. God forbid it. It was not allowed. Anyone who was a eunuch and, and, and uh, was emasculated to that extent was not allowed to worship in the temple. You weren't allowed access because you were only a half-convert because you couldn't be circumcised. You were an outsider. As even if you wanted to be an insider, you physically could not become an insider and you were kept at arm's length from full participation and involvement in Jewish life. This man, despite knowing that, still traveled hundreds of miles to go worship with the, exact, with the full knowledge of knowing I can only get so far. And he still went to worship. He still loved the Lord. This is an important part because we're going to recognize later he makes a request. But when we look these things together, no matter the wealth, we have to make a mental chart of the difference between the Ethiopian and Philip. So let's create a little bit of list. Could you do that with me? Let's step into some shoes and let's look at the, the disparity between Philip and this Ethiopian. First, he's rich. He is, he is one percenter at the top of the one percent. He's a queen's aide. He's important. He's responsible. And he's an outsider. Then we have Philip on the other hand. He's a Greek Jew. He grew up diaspora, so he's returned, and he's a disciple. That's really all we know about him. Now, looking at those two lists, should Philip be able to approach him? Don't you see the oddity when God says, now go join that chariot? That's the modern-day equivalent of being at the airport and seeing a private jet with its ramp, I mean, its uh, uh, stairs lowered down, and the Lord says, I want you to walk up there and say, I have a message for you. Anybody feel awkward doing that? Anybody feel like, ah, what's gonna, what am I going to receive at the end of that? This is the unique call that God places upon Philip. Despite where you are, I want you to go talk to him. There are cultural and social differences, vast ones in this story. Yet Philip goes. Yet Philip goes and joins the chariot. See, the fact of the story and of Christian history are simple. Christians can share Christ with people who are different from them by simply loving them and being humble and sensitive to their needs. The gospel can bridge whatever social and cultural gap. There is no better message that I know of that can contextualize to any culture. If you've had the opportunity to travel the world, uh, specifically on missions trips, there might have been opportunities for you to recognize different cultures. And they're still worshiping the same God. They still believe in the same message. One of the unique things about worshiping in the United States, we have such a busy, high-paced culture Monday through Saturday that church, the reason why it's toned down is because we need rest. We've forgotten how to rest. But if you go to South Africa, the church that I went to, uh, brothers and sisters preaching the gospel, loving Jesus, sharing Jesus, their Sunday was a party. They stepped into church and there was dancing, there was singing, there was joy from dusk till dawn, dawn till dusk, excuse me. 
And I was kind of odd by it. I'm like, that's not my Sunday. I'm not used to that. Well, what do they do Monday through Saturday? In the town we were at, there's a million people without jobs. They don't do much throughout the week. And that's not saying they don't want to do much. That's just the culturally what was taking place. And so when they came to church on Sunday, it was the same message, but they received it and praised the Lord differently. That's because the gospel message about Christ contextualizes to where we're at. The gospel message that you and I have, when we answer the call to go, we can have confidence that it will bridge whatever gap we face. The Holy Spirit will do that. The differences in race, rank, and nationality disappear when the Ethiopian acknowledges his need. This is because Philip is not the agent of salvation. Instead, he is God's instrument to work out salvation in another. Philip is not the agent of salvation. He is the instrument. God is the agent of salvation because God prepares the heart for salvation. Let's read Acts chapter 8, verse 30 through 31. When Philip ran up to it, that being the chariot, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. It's amazing that God precedes our witness no matter where we go and when we do it. God works in the lives of those he's calling to salvation. He is already active. This Ethiopian is no different. I can imagine, much to Philip's surprise, as he's running up next to the chariot, he hears familiar words of Isaiah 53. Like, I've, I've heard this before. I know this. Now, when I read this story younger and still to this day, I have, I'm a little suspect. I go, man, that is, I have never been walking down the street, hear someone reading Isaiah 53, and then just says, I wonder if, any, I don't know what this means. Can someone help me? This seems like a pretty softball scenario, if you will. I, I don't get that, that lucky. But do you know why that thought should be suspect and not true? It's because the Lord is the one who works out salvation. I have no ability, zero ability or cunning to be able to lead people to accept the message of Christ. Only God can warm the heart of another person to receive Christ's message. That's something outside of your power and my power. So no matter, no matter how easy we think Philip might have had it, our interactions are actually no different. God precedes us. God is working in the life of those whom he is calling. He is softening their heart. He's opened their minds. He's giving them questions to ask. What are we doing then? We're joining the work of God. We're joining the activity that he's already involved in. That's our joy. Lo, behold, lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Jesus is saying, join me. I am going to be in this practice of going. Let's look at what the Lord has to say about him preceding our witness. Look, look with me in Acts chapter 16. We're going to get there later in the year. But it says this, a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatria, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. Did Paul do anything? Yeah, he was faithful in proclaiming the message. But what did the Lord do? He warmed her heart to receive it. Jesus predicts this in John chapter 6, verse 44 through 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one. It must be the Father. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Are we, are we, are we cognizant of what God is doing? Do we know that his activity is, is, a, is surrounding us in this city with our neighbors? And we're just choosing not to join it? 
I think that's the case. I think we're choosing not to join God for whatever reason, but he is drawing us in. He wants us to know that evangelism begins in the heart of God and takes shape in the hands of God. It is God's heart and desire to save, and it's his work that we're joining when we answer the call to obey and go. And so where do we start? In joining the work of God and sharing the gospel with someone else, where should we start? I think we start the same place Philip does. We start with the person's questions. What is on their mind? What are they thinking? In this case, he asked, hey, do you want to know what you're reading? Do you understand it? And the Ethiopian says, how can I, unless someone shares it with me? See, someone's objections or questions to the faith aren't obstacles. I know we look at them that way. We, we have a, an internal battle like, oh, I have to answer this. But please, let's dismantle that for a second. People's questions and objections are first stories we get to understand. There's a reason why they're asking it. There's a reason why they're fixated on that idea and not another one. There's a story behind it. God is calling us to be relational, to have friendships, to be known and to love and to know and to love. I remember meeting a man, Jay. He was sitting at the back of church on Sunday. Not this church, it was a different church. And he had some questions and objections to the faith. And at this point, that's basically someone coming to church who doesn't believe is the equivalent of someone reading Isaiah on the street. I get that. And so we went out to lunch later that week, and his objections to Christianity stemmed from hypocrisy and hurt caused by the church throughout history and today. That was his objections. Why is there so much hurt and pain for the people who claim to be people of God? Now, in that moment, I had two options. I could go on a history um, story or history track and go through and try to answer questions, but I knew that wasn't my responsibility. In that moment, I knew my goal was to figure out why he was asking it at all. I I wanted to anticipate there's a reason why hurt and pain is at the center of his questioning, because there was hurt and pain at the center of his life caused by some people in the church. There's a story to unfold. We have the opportunity to learn someone's story, asking questions. And to make a a long story brief, my interest in his journey awarded me the same experience Philip did with the Ethiopian when he said he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. People will invite us into their lives when we genuinely care about what concerns them. It's true. We share the gospel faithfully and routinely by caring for people and what concerns them. And so after sitting with Jay for an afternoon, he started to share his story with me and what was most important. Then there came a moment where he revealed to me his operating system. He revealed to me the philosophical lens about which he viewed life. And for him, it was Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Here's a simplified picture of what Maslow's hierarchy of needs looks like. Is it popped up? Oh, it's not back here. So it starts at the bottom, and Maslow says, in order to get to the top, which is self-actualization, so achieving one's full potential, including creative activities, in order to get to the top, you've got to start at the bottom and work your way up. So first you need your physical needs, then your safety, belonging, esteem, and then you'll get to the final top. So as he's sharing this with me, I begin to see why he was having his objections and his questions. Do you see where it comes from? It's the bottom. He couldn't receive the message of Christ because for him, the physical and safety needs were not met by the church and the people of God. 
They could not do it. But because I relationally invested in him, asking questions, getting to know him, laughing, enjoying a meal together, I had permission. I had the, the equity to cash in in a moment to say, can I, can I share with you the message of Jesus and show you how for Christ the pyramid is upside down and it starts with self-actualization and works its way up? Can I share with you that Christ in me, the hope of glory, that it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me? Can I share with you that I read Ephesians and I'm told of all who I am, my esteem, who God sees me to be? Can I read with you Matthew chapter 6 and not being worried but allowing the Lord to prepare you? He gave me the ability to speak into his life because I cared for it before. Brothers and sisters, God is at work in people's lives. He was asking these questions because the Lord was afflicting him. He came to church one day. God is warming people's heart to salvation. We are merely joining that work. And so what if the Ethiopian, what, what Philip does with the Ethiopian, I did with Jay that day, and I encourage us to do the same. We went and we looked at the book. We went to Scripture. Because our message is Jesus. And so we're called to be personal evangelists. We have confidence knowing the gospel can bridge social and cultural bridges and gaps. It can bridge those things. We know that God is at work. He precedes our witness far before we even show up on the scene. But then when we do show up on the scene, our message is Jesus. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb is silent before its shears, so, does, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe this generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about? Himself or someone else? And Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. This man is reading Isaiah 53. If you haven't had the opportunity to read it, please do so. It's a monumental prophetic passage about the Messiah and a golden opportunity for Philip to talk about Jesus. Notice the man's question, though. He didn't ask what it meant or ponder the nuances of the text. He simply wanted to know, who is this speaking? Who is this about? Who is it referring to? Do we see God's hand orchestrating the events of Philip's life. I'm going to call you out of Samaria. I'm going to call you out of a good time, a happening place, an exciting place to meet a man to discuss one question. Who is Jesus? That's what God is calling him out of Samaria to do, to have him ponder one question. Who is Jesus? I want you to put yourself in Philip's shoes for a moment in this interaction. As the scroll of Isaiah is open and being read, you would have heard him say, he was like a sheep led to the slaughter. And Philip would have remembered entering the city surrounded by praise and adoration with shouts of, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Yet remembering Jesus' lament over his entry of the city, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. When he heard, as a lamb silent before its shear, so he does not open his mouth, Philip recalled the John the Baptist's declaration that says, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And then recounts that Jesus was silent before his kangaroo courts of Caiaphas and Pilate. 
when he heard in his humiliation justice was denied him. Philip remembers the crowd responding to Pilate when he questioned them, what has this man done wrong and what does the, the crowd chant? Crucify him, crucify him. There was no justice. When he heard, who will describe his generation? For his life was taken from the earth. Philip would have drawn up from his heart the words of Christ. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. The promise of Christ. And so as they're sitting in this chariot, starting with this passage and moving on, just like Jesus did on the road to Emmaus with the two men, he showed them the passages of the Old Testament that pointed towards Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we point people to Jesus. Our message is Jesus. So who is the prophet saying this about? Well, Philip had no problem pointing him to who it was. The words, the word directs the mind and the heart to Christ. The scriptures that you and I hold right here in our hand point our head and our heart to Jesus. So don't underestimate the power of God's word to save the soul. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word that you and I have is living because the one who uttered it is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is alive and he is at work and this is his word. And that word is the power to save. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have an obligation to know the word of God. You don't have to have an infinite knowledge of the word of God to share the gospel, but you do need to know the word of God in order to share the gospel. Bible study is important Rigorous study of the word of God and memorization empowers and enables our word because what we do in that moment, when I'm sitting with Jay across from the table, I turn the scripture towards him and I have him read it. I don't read it. And then after he reads it, I simply ask one question. What does that say to you? I have him wrestle with it because do I save? No, I don't save, but God does. Brothers and sisters, use the word. I think we grow hesitant to use it because people may not believe it. They may not believe it's authoritative, but let it be its own power. You don't need to defend this word. It has lasted thousands of years for a reason, because the one who's uttered it is eternal. Brothers and sisters, turn the word around and ask someone to read it in that moment. Relationships get you to that moment, but trust that God can do something in, the, in that moment when we share the word. And so beginning with Isaiah 53 and working through the Old Testament, Philip offered the man Jesus. We don't know how long their journey was, but the man believed. It was long enough for Philip to tell him about the church and baptism, which led the Ethiopian to ask one question. As they were traveling, verse 36, down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? The last thing we do as personal evangelists is we offer acceptance into the family of God. We offer full acceptance into the family of God. Through inference, we know that their conversation resulted in the Ethiopian placing his faith in Jesus. 
Somewhere in the discussion, Philip might have told him of Peter's sermon and the call to the people in Jerusalem to repent and be baptized. And so he asked this question, what's keeping me from being baptized? See, lying underneath this question is the assumption that there's a prerequisite or there's some condition that he needs to meet. Remember, he's a eunuch. For his life, he, life, he has been kept at arm's length from full participation and acceptance into the family of God. So he asks this question, what's keeping me from being baptized? Now, you know what's unique? We don't have Philip's answer. The only answer we do have is verse 38. So he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. And when they come, came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared in Azotus, and he was traveling and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Philip's answer isn't recorded, but we know he said nothing. There is nothing keeping you from full acceptance and participation in the family of God, with the only condition being belief in Christ. We know he came to that acceptance because Philip baptized him. Is there anything keeping us from the family of God? Are, are, are you, do you feel fully welcome in this family? Do you feel fully apart that there's anything holding you back? There are things that our mind and our experience will run into, but as far as God and his word proclaims, the answer is no. There is full acceptance into the life and the family of God. And so ordering the chariot to stop, they were baptized. He was baptized. And I think it's, and this is the miraculous part. He came up from out of the water and Philip disappeared. He's gone. Angel said, all right, you're done with this. You shared with one guy. It's time to move on. Let's go share with another. Now this didn't, upset the Ethiopian at all. What does he say? I, he went away rejoicing. He has full acceptance in the family of God. He has a family when he was destined in life to never have one. He had a people and a savior that could no longer be taken away from him. And so when I look back at my baptism and I look at the Ethiopian's baptism, there is something special. My status before God was not transformed by being baptized. But what was transformed is my life from the point of obedience onward, that I can always look back on and recall that I'm a part of this family. This is the legacy that I get to be a part of. And this is the legacy that we are calling others to be a part of. This is what we do when we share the gospel. God is calling us to be personal evangelists. That is our evangelistic program in this church. You are. We're not going to have major events. Sure, we may do different things where we can invite people and bring them. There's going to be a, a Will Graham, so Billy Graham's grandson is coming here in two years. We're going to do that, a bunch of churches around. But know this, from that point on, from this point onward, each and every one of us sitting in this seat are the evangelistic program of this church. And we have confidence knowing that the gospel can bridge any gap, that God is already at work, that our message is Jesus. And that at the end point, when we reach a, a place to call them forward and offer them a decision, that they have a family that they get to join. And so, brothers and sisters, as we close, I, I want us to wrestle with some questions. Are you being called to go? Do you know where you're being called to go? Are some of you being called to an odd desert road at a specific time? Are you confident in the gospel's ability to save 
Are you confident in the gospel's ability to save someone different than you? Someone who might be an outsider. What work of God are you being directed to recognize and to join? Do you see the work of God? Do you rely on the word of God to do the saving? And last, what's keeping you from being baptized? Is there anything keeping you from stepping into the water and obeying Christ and experiencing the joy of salvation and participation in the family? I'll give you the answer. It's no, but we want you to follow. And so as we close and continue, you are a personal evangelist. This is our family legacy. What we read in this book, we continue to this day. That's why we have it. That's why we come back to it again and again. Because there is joy in the obedience of God and seeing people say yes to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we ask for a blessing to be upon each and every one of us here. We ask for the ability to find courage and hope and strength that we are your evangelists. We are your instruments of salvation in this world. First in eastern Idaho and then to the far corners of this globe. Lord, will you use us? Will you help our spirit right now to affirm the calling that you placed upon us? So give us eyes to see and ears to hear where your spirit is leading, that we may go and lead people to Christ. It is in your son's name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.